Hey, this is Steve Campbell from the C3 Church. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. Our prayer for you is that you'll be blessed, equipped, and enabled as you listen to this message. God bless you. Friends at C3 Church in Cambridge. It's sad we can't be together in physical space this morning, but at least we get to talk using the miracle of digital technology. I want to thank Pastor Steve and Angie for the kind invitation. Anne Frank once wrote these words, How wonderful it is that nobody need wait a single moment before starting to improve the world. We can only imagine, of course, the impact Anne Frank might have had had she lived. No doubt she would have been a change agent of some kind. But for me, her words always bring to mind the biblical prophet Nehemiah. He was definitely a man who chose to be proactive, ready to improve his world. Nehemiah lived in the 5th century BC. He served King Artaxerxes I, King of Persia. His family had been part of the diaspora, the scattering of Jewish people that followed the fall of their capital city decades before. Nehemiah may never have actually seen Jerusalem, even in his youth, but he kept a keen ear to the ground, paying close attention to developments in that once great city. Though he was effectively the child of a displaced refugee family, he'd risen through the ranks of public service to become a cupbearer to the king. The job involved being part wine connoisseur, part head waiter, and part bodyguard as the king's wine taster. He was responsible not just for the king's table, but for the king's life. Death by poisoning was a favorite way of dispensing with unpopular monarchs at the time. During his service at court, Nehemiah became increasingly saddened by what he was hearing about Jerusalem. Its walls were smashed, its defenses were down, and they opened to all kinds of invasions by thieves and the traditional enemies of Israel. He felt compelled to approach the king of Persia to ask for permission to rebuild Jerusalem's walls. Nehemiah knew that he was engaging in much more than a physical engineering project. He was restoring the soul and competence of an entire nation. His work would lay a foundation on which Israel could rebuild its shattered economy. Even in modern economies, the primary currency is trust, a confidence in the security of the system. In the end, despite many setbacks, Nehemiah completed the wall. And on the day it was dedicated, the Bible says, the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Looking at the world as it is now, I think that of all the Old Testament prophets, Nehemiah is the prophet for today. And I say that for two reasons. First of all, because Nehemiah was an innovator. He didn't just see the problems facing his people, he set out to do something about them. Today, in an age where everything seems fluid and subject to change, innovation trumps qualification every time. In a world where everyone can know a little about a lot with just a few swipes of a finger, Having information is not that impressive. What counts now is whether you can use your information to add value to human beings and their environment. And Nehemiah was also prophet for today because he understood how to overcome opposition. In Nehemiah 1.9, the prophet records that our enemies were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work. It won't be completed. But I prayed, Lord, now strengthen my hands. In Nehemiah 1.15 he adds, 
When all of our enemies heard that the war was completed, all the surrounding nations were afraid. They lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Now, I'm both a futurist and a minister. I'm constantly tracking changes in social attitudes, technology, ethics, and much more. And I believe one of the most defining aspects of the church in the next 10 years will be its ability to handle opposition. Our research at 2030 Plus suggests that there's every likelihood, based on shifts in attitudes and ethics, that we will see over the next decade a rise in opposition to faith, including, and perhaps especially, Christian faith. Now, on one level, that shouldn't cause us any undue anxiety, because Jesus promised us opposition as a normal part of a life of faith. In Mark 10, verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. It's important that I say here that whilst we will experience opposition on some level, we shouldn't go looking for it. There's no shortage of conspiracy theories alive in the world today. There never has been. Some of us may actually experience a conspiracy where other people bind together to deny us opportunities because of our faith in the workplace, for example. But if we make it our mission to seek out conspiracies, we'll sometimes find them where they don't exist or where there's no conclusive evidence that they do. That's true for us personally and collectively, and it's impossible for our default response to the world to be proactive and reactive at the same time. Opposition can take three forms. The first is personal opposition. You may be experiencing opposition to your faith on a very personal level right now. It may come from family members, friends, work colleagues, or in the age of social media, even people you don't know. Personal opposition is often expressed through false accusation, or innuendo and rumour, or the denial of opportunities that are open to other people. It may come in the form of bullying and harassment, or the pressure to conform to the expectations of others. Then there's institutional opposition. You may be experiencing a form of opposition that seems to be embedded in the very culture of your workplace, university or school. A good example of institutional opposition is the practice of no platforming in some of our universities. Now, rights only work when they're proscribed by responsibilities, so free speech must be accompanied by a commitment to act responsibly for the common good. But much of today's no platforming is an excuse for pushing political agendas. It's a practice that not only denies freedom of speech for invited guests, it also robs students of the opportunity to debate for themselves important issues at hand, which is one of the most important higher education bestows on us. The third type of opposition is systemic or societal opposition. This is the type that we most often refer to when we speak of persecution. If institutional opposition goes unchecked for a long period of time, it can gradually spread across entire sectors of society, so that opposition to faith becomes the norm throughout the entire community. Systemic opposition is expressed in all of the things we've already mentioned, but on a society-wide basis. And we could add a few more, including the denial of the right to work or build a house, the denial of freedom of expression or freedom to gather for worship, the denial of the right to read scriptures in public or even in private, 
and the right to life itself. A few years ago, at the height of the Syrian war, I conducted a TV interview on persecution with Bishop Dr. Michael Nazarelli. He's a Church of England bishop, an author, and an advocate for persecuted people the world over. I asked Dr. Nazarelli what life looks like for people enduring systemic persecution right now. Even in the last five years, there have been very serious attacks on churches. Uh, churches have been bombed, clergy have been kidnapped and murdered. I mean, it's a risky business being clergy in that part of the world. Uh, people's homes have been attacked, shops have been looted. So what you have now is an escalation of uh, what's been going on. And as you say, it's a very serious escalation because now it is not just attacking individuals or churches, but uh, whole communities. Uh, I mean, we can properly call this an attempt at genocide. What's it like for Christians and other minorities living in Iran today? Uh, it's been very difficult. I mean, since the revolution, um, the Christian communities that have suffered greatly have been the Pentecostal churches, the Anglican church, uh, churches that have uh, spoken Farsi, the language of the country, and have worshipped in it and read the Bible in it. Uh, worship's been broken up, churches have been closed, they've been forbidden to worship in Farsi, uh, which is their mother tongue for many of them. Um, their leaders have been imprisoned, uh, many are still in prison. Um, and the situation has not really improved under President Rouhani. Today, 260 million people in 50 countries are facing a high level of risk of this type of opposition. Thankfully, we don't yet see much of this in Europe, and we should pray that we never do. But there's a good reason to believe that certain types of opposition are on the rise in Europe. The Pew Research Center's Forum on Religion and Public Life has conducted studies into persecution. It's found growing levels of both government restrictions on religion and social hostilities toward religion that affect one third of the world's population. A number of the countries where social hostility against religion is growing are situated here in Europe, including countries like the UK, Denmark and Sweden. Without being paranoid about it, I think there are some clear signs of this type of hostility in the emerging woke culture. Wokeness represents a new form of hyper-political correctness. Its motive, I think, sometimes starts in a good place, the desire to reduce friction and defend minorities. But the execution, I think, is often misguided. Instead of breeding tolerance, woke culture brings its own intolerance because of its unwillingness to engage with ideas different to its own. It also ties the hands of true activism. And that's one reason Christians should guard against a persecution complex. How can you bring change to a culture you've declared your enemy? That's one reason I think Jesus said, love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. You can't influence for good people you've already declared off limits. To bring real change, we need to engage with people who don't agree with us or sometimes even like us. In all of this, it's important to remember that systemic persecution is not inevitable, but some form of opposition is. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, the Bible says, What fellowship can light have with darkness? Another version says, How can light live with darkness? 
If by your very presence you shine a light in dark spaces, you will be a source of some discomfort to people who prefer life with the lights off. Jesus told us to expect opposition, but the Bible also teaches us how to overcome opposition, influencing our world more than it influences us. To overcome opposition, we must first of all engage with the problems around us. It's hard, though not impossible, for people to continually oppose those who solve the most pressing problems facing individuals, communities or entire societies. I was in a conference 10 years ago in Australia speaking to pastors from across the nation and in a Q&A someone said, Mal, as a futurist and a minister, what do you think is the biggest problem facing the church in Australia in the next 10 years? And I replied, water management. They looked at me with confusion in their eyes. Water management? And I said to them, think about it. If people in our churches could be involved in solving pressing problems like water management when we're facing a huge drought in this country and constant bushfires, don't you think that people might give us a hearing on other issues, including spiritual issues? George Washington Carver is revered as one of the greatest inventors America has ever produced. Born into slavery, he was raised by his owner, Moses Carver. Moses and his wife taught young George how to read, write and do arithmetic. At around the age of 10 or 12, with the support of the Carvers, George left to find a school that would teach African Americans. He worked his way through school and finally graduated from high school in his late 20s. Then, in 1896, he headed off to college, one of the first African Americans to do so. After graduation, he became an inventor par excellence. His many chemical innovations gave the world everything from modern cosmetics, face creams and shampoos to dyes and paints that we still use in the building industry today. He also produced new foods and everyday products like linoleum. Even peanut butter was his invention. George was a man of strong Christian faith. He once said, I love to think of nature as an unlimited broadcasting station through which God speaks to every one of us every hour if we'll only tune in. So great were his achievements that in the 1940s, Time magazine called him the Black Leonardo, linking him forever to the genius that was Leonardo da Vinci. George Washington Carver was born into systemic racism, one of the ugliest of all forms of opposition. Yet he became a celebrated member of the very society that had persecuted him because of his commitment to solving problems. We can also overcome or even turn away opposition if we stand firm. In the face of opposition of any kind, the Bible says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. Notice what it says we stand on, the faith. That is, the revelation of God as contained in the Bible. Nehemiah was motivated in his work by divine promises made through earlier prophets, including Jeremiah. Some Christians today stand only on their emotions or their experience. They are, in the words of Paul, like infants tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching, influenced by people who try to trick them with lies so clever they sound like the truth. To face down opposition, we must let revelation shape our conviction, not the other way around. Some Christians accept moral positions on important issues that run exactly counter to the Word of God. Their theology is shaped by their experience or that of people they care about. 
They recognize that making certain decisions based in the Word of God will be painful for themselves or for people they love. But I think they fail to recognize that there's greater danger in ignoring the Word of God. The Scripture says the wages of sin is death, a gradual, inevitable spiritual and moral decline ending in separation from God and all the good things He wants for our lives. We live in a natural universe that's governed by natural laws. They're not laws because someone decreed them to be laws. They're laws because they describe how things normally work in the natural world. But we also live in a moral universe. There are moral laws or boundaries that are not random proscriptions laid out to stop us having any fun. They're descriptions of how things actually work in a moral universe. If I commit adultery, people are going to be hurt, including me. If I lie, cheat, steal, people will get hurt, and I will gradually confuse, then lose, my inbuilt sense of right and wrong. Thank God He's willing to forgive all of these things and more if we ask forgiveness through the sacrifice Jesus made for us on the cross. God's truth operates like flags on a beach. It marks out a safe space for a great experience. If we swim between the flags, and they're a lot less restrictive than some people think, we can lead a safe, fulfilling, rich, and influential life. There's one last thing we can do in the face of opposition, whether it's personal, institutional, or systemic, and that is to travel light. One of the hallmarks of Nehemiah's time as governor of Persian Judea was his unwillingness to take advantage of the perks and privileges of his position. When Jesus gathered the twelve disciples and sent them on their inaugural missions trip, his first instruction was this, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. What's he saying? Travel light. Nothing saps our strength like unresolved frustration, especially when we want in the here and now what only heaven can provide. Christians do not, at least in this respect, accept the teaching of Darwin in biology or Descartes in philosophy, who taught that we're simply a result of natural processes, that we have no higher moral purpose or soul, that our bodies are ours to do with as we please. Christians believe that our lives are not our own, that we are stewards of God's gift to us, we believe that our lives are not physical and temporal alone, but also spiritual and eternal. We were built not just for time, but for eternity. Not just for this age, but for the next age too. As long as I live in this fallen world, a part of me remains broken, waiting to be mended. Not even the greatest business deal will leave me totally fulfilled. Not even the greatest friendship or marriage will totally satisfy my desire for intimacy. Not even the biggest bank account will satisfy my need for security. And in a world where I'm encouraged to fill every hunger, to achieve immediate gratification for every need, it's good for me to remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger, and it's in the present continuous, those who keep hungering and keep thirsting for righteousness, for they shall be filled. There's a blessedness, he said, that comes from keeping alive my hunger for something that this world, this lifetime, simply can't provide. The lower your heart investment in things and status, the higher will be your tolerance for the loss thereof. And how can we respond to God's call to go if we're tied down with stuff? How can we act on God's call to give if things represent our true security? For a Christian, opposition is a part of the walk of faith. Though people experience it, 
in different ways. Opposition may be personal, it may be institutional, or it may be systemic, society-wide opposition. And to overcome opposition, and in some cases even prevent it, we need to engage our world and its problems. We need to stand firm on the Word of God, not just our incomplete experience, reason or emotions. And we need to travel light, never confusing heavenly aspiration for earthly acquisition. Well, thanks for our time together today. I hope this message has helped you in some way. Stay well. God bless. Bye for now. What a great message there by Mal. So applicable for us in this day and age, and for us as the church, as the people of God. Mal mentioned a verse early on from the book of Nehemiah about Nehemiah praying, strengthen my hands. And I just want to pray for us in whatever opposition you're facing right now, in any areas where you're engaging with the problems, maybe where you need to stand firm, or maybe where you need to travel light, shed some things for the journey. I want to pray that God will strengthen our hands. Let's pray for that. Father, I pray for everyone who's listened to this message. I pray, Lord, that the anointing of your Spirit will allow us to be those that are overcomers. Thank you for what Mal has said to us there in that the church will be defined by our ability to overcome opposition. I pray, Lord, that we will find strength in our hands, in our hearts, in all that we do. I pray that we'll have wisdom to solve problems. Give us insight where others don't see, Lord, that we may be an answer to our world's problems, that we may get our hands dirty, that we may go into situations where others fear to tread because you are with us. I pray for dreams in the night. I pray for wisdom in the day. I pray for insight and understanding. I pray that our hands will be strengthened even in the face of opposition, that we'll not have that persecution mentality that Mal spoke about, that we'll be those who are bold and strong, that we will overcome because you are with us and you are for us. I pray for every individual that's facing some kind of opposition right now. We pray for the persecuted church as well that's experiencing persecution through the taking of life. We pray, Lord, that there would be a power within to overcome. I pray for us, Lord, that we would be those that stand, having done all, stand in our world with a wisdom and with a way. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us your spirit that lives within us, that you've given us your word. Thank you that it is revelation. Thank you that we can stand morally against the flow of immoral living and that we can demonstrate this works, the gospel works, the Bible works faith works in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We pray it's been a blessing to you. Why not share it with your friends and family through social media? If you're not on the regular podcast list, then why don't you subscribe? Thank you especially to those that give. If you want to give to this ministry, you can go to our website, thec3.uk/giving, and get involved. God bless you.